Welcome to the Maternity and Midwifery Hour, brought to you once a week by the Maternity and Midwifery Forum. This podcast is supported by Matflix, video streaming from maternity experts. All your CPD needs made easy. If you need to get your revalidation done or have a student project to complete, Matflix is the one-stop shop. Good evening and welcome to this episode of Maternity and Midwifery Hour in which we're just going to be discussing preeclampsia. This hour is supported by Matflix, which is video streaming from midwifery experts and it's perfect for your CPD and revalidation and very good for your student midwives and anyone who's interested in becoming a midwife. Um, My name's Sue MacDonald and I'm the curator of the Maternity and Midwifery Festivals and these hours and these came about because obviously we can't because of covid we can't have massive festivals at the moment but we can meet up with you and give you a nice hour of fantastic discussion and presentations which i'm really thrilled to be here to facilitate and tonight i'm joined by professor andy shannon professor of obstetrics at king's college he's also a trustee on um in action in action four, action on preeclampsia, otherwise known as APEC, and also Caitlin Wilson, who's a consultant midwife at Worcester Acute Hospitals NHS Trust. So before we start, um, perhaps I could ask each of you for a moment of the week, something that's happened today that's or this week that's been special. Andy, perhaps. Oh, okay. So, so you just jumped us on me, and I. I, I <laughs> <laughs> so, actually, the best thing that happened this week is I got a email from an obstetrician from Tanzania who'd seen a video that I'd made about doing an operation, abdominal circlage, and he said to me, he had delivered this woman at term or near term um, by cesarean, having lost ten babies previously, late miscarriages, and we nailed it with this uh, operation. So in Tanzania, so that that really made my week. So I was delighted. Fantastic! That's a wonderful moment. Thank you. How about Caitlin? Oh, I've just received um, some fantastic news about some of the women that we've been looking after in our continuity of care scheme are actually coming back to our program. So we've wow. just had a few coming back through, and and that's really exciting with some of their stories that are coming through. So really nice to see when you kind of hear the team calling you and saying we're getting we're getting some. Some, some new people coming back, so that's exciting. Okay. Really it exciting almost feels see. like a sort of a bit of a normal. It does, and what, yeah. Whatever normal is yeah. going to be. So that's yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we start off with the meat of the session, I'd just like to just pause a moment just to think about people who are affected at the moment by COVID, either with family or friends or loved ones who are either poorly or have been poorly or have actually unfortunately lost anybody we know that we've lost over 200 health service and social care workers Uh, and i know there is a a memorial site which people might might be interested in going to look at uh, and be aware of the scale of loss Um, and i'd like to just spend a moment to say um, we're so supportive and sad for the people who are lost and their families and friends it's a huge hugely difficult time 
um, for those people. And also, on moving it a little way upwards, because it's coming up for Thursday tomorrow, and every Thursday at 8 o'clock, everyone comes out and applauds our key workers, our NHS colleagues and friends, and actually all the key workers all over the country who are keeping the place going. And again, I'd like to say a big thank you from the forum to all those people. My turn for some highlights. I'm not going to start with a moment of the week. I'm going to start with the news for the week, just some snippets. The first snippet, I'm sure Andy will mention this, that it's World Preeclampsia Day on the 22nd of May this week. Uh, it's also Mental Aware Health Awareness Week. So I think it's important for all of us here within the service and, and, and providing care to, to everybody, actually, to think about kindness and compassion to ourselves as well as others. And I'm talking to people I know who are looking after people and probably not always thinking about them themselves first. So think about yourself a little bit, care for yourself and be kind to yourself. Plus, it's a Chelsea Flower Show this week, and, and that's gone very virtual. I don't know if anyone has accessed that, but it's a, a good source of things that help your mental health. So good, positive things. Also, have a look out for the mid midwifery ambassadors who have done a rendition of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and it's on YouTube, and it's a really uplifting to see all our wonderful midwifery midwifery ambassadors singing that song they're absolutely fantastic so do have a look at that that will be available on the facebook page resources that are all available after this session because and that's that resource runs to about three pages now of lots of links to places to get information leaflets um any research updated research that sort of thing so it's really helpful to have that to refer to now in this program we are going to explore the um really we're looking at preeclampsia in the context of covid19 and its impact on maternity services because as we always say though in other services they've been able to reduce things like elective surgery and other services that would be going on maternity services carry on the care we provide to women their babies and their families has to carry on and we still have to be vigilant for um, complications and difficulties for example preeclampsia so that's what we're focusing on today um, and not just preventing but early identification and support of women with preeclampsia so I'm very happy now and delighted in fact to um, introduce our first speaker who is Professor Andy Shannon, Professor of Obstetrics at King's College, which I've said before, trustee for APEC. And he's based at St. Thomas's. He's clinical lead of the Maternal and Fetal Research Unit and specializes in clinical trials in antenatal intrapartum care. I might always also say today is Clinical Trials Day as well, which is interesting. Um, Andy's research interests include interventions to prevent preterm birth, preeclampsia, encouragement of normal birth, and the use of blood pressure monitoring. He chaired the Department of Health Committee on Blood Pressure Monitoring in Clinical Practice and sits on the relevant 
committees that the International Standardization Organization, ISO, and the British Hypertension Society. He also advises the World Health Organization on perinatal research. So I'm really pleased to provide you with the screen of the floor, Andy. Thank you. Great. But thank you very much, uh, Sue, and thank you for your, your you know, your, your comments. Um, I think I think we need to be mindful that this is a serious condition. And I only heard today another one of our colleagues, a young female doctor, you know, has gone into hospital quite seriously ill. And I think that's just a sobering reminder that this hasn't gone away and probably isn't going to go away. Um, but I think we have to kind of move on. And I, I, it's a really great opportunity here to um, be able to talk to you. And, and APEC, which is a charity dedicated to um, preeclampsia, um, has always had a very close and fruitful relationship with the midwives who, who are absolutely key in main, maintaining the success we've had in managing preeclampsia over the years. And I think it's critical at this time that we, we, we maintain that success and don't let um, you know this virus change what, what has been achieved. So what I wanted to do in the next few minutes is maybe just go through the relative merits of preeclampsia management and how it impacts on COVID and what we should think about um, as, as we sort of work our way through this quagmire. Um, so um, I'm just going to sort of very briefly go through what preeclampsia can sometimes be viewed at in terms of its evolution and what we know about it and how that equates to our clinical knowledge um, and management. So we know that this is a disease that probably starts very early on in pregnancy. Um, and we don't know it's there until people develop hypertension and proteinuria. Sometimes that can be quite early when it tends to be more serious. Um, we don't always get symptoms with it, but those symptoms come on variably a little bit later. But what is almost invariable is a crisis that means the mother has to be delivered and the baby has to be delivered. Um, and if that doesn't happen, it can be fatal. And I think we sometimes forget how serious it is because we manage it so well. And for so long now in the UK, uh, thanks to the universal healthcare provision and the midwifery structures we have, this has been a huge success. Um, and I, I think we should think critically about what we've achieved and how COVID might impact on this. And the thing that I always like to show is that it's only a couple of weeks between um, somebody developing the sort of signs of preeclampsia and, and a crisis happening. And if you develop preeclampsia, for example, be at 34 weeks, um, it's only about five days before you have to be delivered because of something serious. Um, and I, I sometimes think we forget how serious a condition it is because people are under our nose and, and with with this care being looked at critically and and the contact we have with women um, I don't think we should forget this um, because preeclampsia is basically there but we don't know about it there are new tests and I want to just very briefly touch on these and how they might be used in the near future now particularly with COVID um, affecting the way we might structure antenatal care now this slide actually illustrates the huge success we've had over the years in managing preeclampsia. And you can see from the 1950s to the 1980s, there was this massive decline in maternal mortality related to blood pressure problems. And this is probably a combination of factors, um, including basic sort of uh, healthcare and societal improvements. But even from 2008, there has been this steady reduction. Um, and that's probably related to some focused issues like you know, aspirin prophylaxis and 
and maybe timing of delivery, not letting people go past 37 weeks if they have the disease. And what it translates into is that now in the UK, only about one in a million women die from this disease, which is perhaps you know, some of the best statistics in the world and, and something that I think we, we can be very proud of. And that's largely due, due to the um, due diligence and, and the careful management and care that um, midwives provide in our healthcare structure, which is something we can be very proud of. Now, in contrast, if you look around the world, here is a geographical map that illustrates mortality around the whole world. And you can see that these 60,000 deaths that occur in preeclampsia are largely in Africa and Asia. Um, and the success we've had in these high income countries isn't because we have wonderful uh, drugs. It's very simple things like identification and timely delivery. And, and drugs like magnesium sulfate and antihypertensives, they only ameliorate the disease in the very short term. They don't actually save lives particularly. Um, and it's just a sort of a temporary measure until one can actually instigate delivery. Um, this is data that I actually have recently um, got from around low and middle income countries in the world showing the chance of people dying from hypertensive diseases um, out there in places like Africa and Asia. And these, these figures are quite startling. You can see they vary a lot depending on where you are and some countries are worse than others, but in absolute terms, they are relatively high. And I just wanted to share that in the context of um, what goes on in the UK. So we know that people die from sepsis in the UK and I particularly show this because I wanted, I looked up the sort of deaths that happen from things like influenza um, and from pneumonia, which is what COVID is causing. Um, and they do occur, but they're relatively rare. And only about one in 200,000, um, one in 200,000 women will you get a death related to that. And COVID has impact on that, perhaps about a five-fold increased risk. And um, one thing about COVID is that it does affect people who are older. I think we all know this, but what's interesting, and this slide shows that the influenza pandemic in 1980, um, if you look at women of reproductive age, which tend to be between the ages of 20 and 40, influenza, for example, in 1980 was far more likely to kill a pregnant woman than say COVID. And so pregnancy itself, although young women do get this disease, as we've all seen, it is relatively rare compared to other conditions. And I think it's important to keep this in perspective. Um, what I actually did for this talk is put together this data, which is the current, you know, the, the prior deaths from influenza, pneumonia, and non-genital sepsis was about one in 220,000 women. If you look at COVID from the UCOS data, for every 16,000 deliveries, there's been one woman die. So obviously that is bad and much higher than you'd expect from pneumonia and influenza. However, if you look at the equivalent mortality and average across low and middle income countries, it's one in 2000. What this actually means is that COVID deaths um, are not nearly as common as um, hypertensive deaths currently in Africa. And what we don't want to do is slip back into the into sort of care whereby people are missed, which is a common problem in Africa and Asia. And we want to maintain this one in a million 
um, risk. And we've got to be very careful about this. And what I've observed over the recent weeks is that quite frequently women will come up and say, oh, well, nobody has seen me. I've had my calls, but nobody's done my blood pressure. Nobody's checked my urine. And there's anecdote after anecdote. Uh, just last Saturday, one of my registrars said that a woman had come in with a systolic of 190 and four pluses of protein, failing completely well, and said that no one had seen her for weeks. And, and so this is something we really, really have got to watch and not slip back into. What I wanted to share with you is our local experience. And this is from Guys in St. Thomas's, which is in the middle of uh, Southwark, Lambeth and Lewisham, which happens to be the worst affected area in London. London happened to be the worst city in the UK and UK, perhaps one of the worst countries in the world. So this is the worst of the worst, actually, and it's not that bad. So we've had less than 30 cases in the entire pandemic. Yes, three people got seriously ill, nobody died, and all the other units in London have a very similar story here. Um, and, and this is not the Tusami of disaster that we were expecting. And we have to balance this. And although this has been a success through the isolation and, and we have to applaud that, we have to balance this against the potential of causing harm by the care that we are not going to give. And this is the point you were making, Sue, and I think this is really important. And again, if you look at the data as it came into our hospital over the pandemic weeks, you can see the red ones. There was only you know, a few positive cases um, sporadically, some weeks that there were none. And in the last two weeks, we've tested every single woman who's been admitted to the hospital. That's 170. 79 women and there hasn't been a single positive case so I think we can take some solace from that 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 this is turning around we have to think critically about the other care we give and not result in a problem which has now become a reality so in order to do that I'm actually going to talk a little bit about aspirin um, aspirin we know if targeted to high-risk women will reduce the risk of early onset and serious preeclampsia through the sort of production of uh, improving the prostacyclin thromboxane balance. Without going into too much detail, I just wanted to share a couple of interesting points that you might find useful. One is we do now know that taking aspirin at night does improve all these outcomes. Um, such a simple thing to say, take it at night instead of the morning. We're not fully aware why, but there are some plausible reasons. And so that's one thing that I think we should say if someone has been prescribed low-dose aspirin. The other thing is interesting evidence coming out about the slightly higher dose. Um, you'll probably see women increasingly be given 150 milligrams, particularly if they're overweight, um, in order to um, uh, reduce the risk. And this trial, the ASPRE trial, has really been the one that has uh, demonstrated this. So 150 milligrams a day given from early on at 12 weeks, uh, taken till 36 weeks and given at bedtime um, and targeting women who've been identified by an algorithm or who, who are at high risk. And you can see that in this study, they can reduce preeclampsia occurring before 32 weeks by 90% and preeclampsia that occurs before 34 weeks by 80%, which is um, the preeclampsia that really matters. So these, these are things that you'll start to see coming in. But my appeal to the midwives is that um, we see people early enough before 16 weeks and we don't miss the opportunity to prescribe high-risk women aspirin because it seems to be benefited uh, benefit those who take it early. And this is something that we may slip away from um, with, with the COVID antenatal care issues. And finally, this, this 
paper that's literally just come out this year in the Lancet showing that nulliparous women in low-income countries routinely given 75 milligrams of aspirin significantly reduced the chance of being delivered early and mainly because it reduced hypertensive disorders. Um, so there was, there was more than a 60% reduction in that uh, of delivery before 34 weeks with hypertensive disorders. So low-dose aspirin has got a role. Um, I just wanted to mention PLGF. This is an angiogenic marker, which is now being rolled out across the UK. Um, some of you may be uh, starting to see it. Um, the, the great thing about it is that if you have a woman who may have preeclampsia, in other words, she has hypertension or symptoms, and you do this blood test between um, you know, in early pregnancy, particularly round about that critical time, 28 to 34 weeks. If it is low, you are much more likely to need delivery soon. And if it is normal, you are very likely to go some months before there's a problem. And this may help tailor our antenatal points of contact, which we're trying to do in the COVID uh, situation. So here's the data. So about one in four women will be very um, high risk. That's they have a red level. They will ha on average need delivery about nine days later. But importantly, over 40% of women who have suspected disease will be normal and they will go a couple of months before they need delivery on average. In other words, a blood test simply tells you they're normal and they do not need to have this intensive care monitoring. Um, you, we know from our clinical trials that using these blood tests in clinical practice actually improves outcomes. And so it translates into better care that actually helps the mother um, and the baby. The other interesting area now is self-monitoring of blood pressure, um, which is a simple thing to do. You give women monitors um, and there are guidance which you can access particularly from the RCOG, RCM that, that tells you about um, who to test and how to do it. But essentially it's people who've had have underlying chronic hypertension who benefit from this most. I think the next group are those who you would target aspirin to. So for example, here's the list that not of nice that nice give to target aspirin. And they'll be great um, to give home monitoring to so we don't miss them developing preeclampsia. And if there were enough monitors available, of course, everybody could benefit from being monitored at home. The trouble is that they are a bit sh in short supply at the moment. And these algorithms are out there so you can actually access them and, and give advice. Um, please use a monitor that's validated in pregnancy. Um, these are available on these websites. They tell that unfortunately preeclampsia means that a lot of automated devices do not aren't accurate and they underread blood pressure. Um, one of the devices we promote in APEC is this one, which actually has a traffic light system on it, which we've developed. And so you can tell women when it's red, call us, when it's amber, call us, and how quickly to act. So this is the Cradle VSA, and they are available from APEC. At the moment, we're, we're out of stock, but there are more coming, and you can see we've put in the normal 14090 for amber. I just wanted to finish off in the last minute or two by saying that um, we are still doing research out in Africa because we realized diseases of hypertension, particularly around the world, are very serious and relatively speaking, compared to COVID, um, still incredibly important. So we haven't stopped our research there. Obviously, we are sensitive to the staffing issues if COVID hits those environments, and we've left it up to local choices. But the research continues, and I think that's important to acknowledge. Um, I think we've looked at ways, and there's a couple of videos that one of my PhD students has come up with 
getting women to access care appropriately. And this is something that we need to concentrate on um, in the future. So if you go to the resources that are being dished out from this talk, you can actually look at these videos. Um, they are nice videos, particularly in a low income setting. Um, so uh, we are starting these new uh, in APEC International that's about to launch. It was going to launch with, a with the preeclampsia day this week, but uh, and in Kigali in June, which unfortunately has been cancelled. Um, but please keep an eye out for this and you can keep an eye on the APEC website. But let's not re uh, go back um, and, and increase these deaths that have come from the past. Um, we have done incredibly well mainly driven by the excellent midwifery care in this country. We want to keep the statistic one in a million and no worse. And, and please just be mindful about the relative uh, problems of withholding antenatal care in the future. Here are some of the resources. Um, I do just want to acknowledge the many, many wonderful people I work with, particularly the midwives. We have huge numbers of midwives on our teams um, who do a sterling job. And we at APEC acknowledge they really are the backbone of our success in this area. Thank you very much. Fabulous, thank you. That's great, Andy. I think I think especially the sort of that's a very simple statistic: one in one million women dying, and keeping it that that almost. I mean, if you're the one, that one person, it's not so good. But that's uh, and I think your point about making sure that we really keep an eye on what's happening, even at this time, um, is really important. And I suppose I was, I might keep that question for when we get to that, actually. I'll keep, I've got a question, but I'll keep it for after. While this event is free on Facebook Live, on demand afterwards, and as a podcast, it's not free to produce. You can support the Maternity and Midwifery Hour on Patreon now. You can sign up as a loyal supporter for as little as £3 a month, or a little more to get content early and receive bonus content. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash midwiferyhour and give what you can afford. Your support is greatly appreciated. So I think I shall move on to Caitlin who is our second speaker. If you're just joining us, this is the Maternity and Midwifery Hour with Andy Shannon and Caitlin Wilson exploring preeclampsia. And I'm very delighted to introduce Caitlin Wilson, who's a consultant midwife at Worcester Acute Hospitals NHS Trust. Um, and before she took on this role, she'd led the development and opening of new, two new birth centres in Yorkshire, the reconfiguration of hospital services, and she's had lots of different um, positions in London and Yorkshire, including consultant midwife, community matron, clinical uh, placement facilita facilitator, and caseload team leader. Her key areas of expertise and interest are choice of birthplace for all women, with the emphasis on MLUs, midwife-led units, and home birth leadership and mentorship, feedback, and continuative con carer. So I think that the the floor is yours, Caitlin. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And Andrew, what a wonderful talk. So uh, what my presentation is going to be about is to look a little bit about the impact that COVID has had on midwifery services, maternity services, but with particular emphasis on midwifery services 
and how our antenatal care, which Andrew has alluded to, um, has been impacted by that and how we are mitigating the risks for women who may potentially have um, symptoms of preeclampsia or be at risk of preeclampsia are being monitored and handled out in our community, um, our community services and our antenatal clinics, whilst we also um, mitigate um, any other risks with COVID-19. And so I'm just gonna start with kind of the, the big picture. Um, as we know, COVID-19 has created challenges for health services all over the globe. And the UK, although as Andrew said, has been um, quite hard hit, um, and the challenges have been there for our health services, um, it is across the globe and, and we need to recognize that. And maternity services has, has gone on. And, and Sue said right at the beginning, you know, although places were able to, or the hospitals were able to um, move things around and you know, cancel appointments that weren't necessary, such as electives, um, elective surgeries and those types of things, um, and moving them later into the service, which has its own public health issues, of course, and its own its own risks that we need to we need to start looking at and mitigating. Um, for maternity services, we have had to carry on. You know, nothing has changed, and the babies babies are coming. Mums need care, and and we have had to continue our delivery of our services. Um, very much at the at the quotas that they were before, but what it has done is it has created some redesign and redesignation of maternity services. So things we've had to be very agile in response to COVID nineteen and how we have been able to both redesign our services and redesignate services into into what we would call green areas, um, where it is a lower risk for for women making contact with wider communities who may be carrying COVID. So that has been something that the service has worked really quickly for. Um, and lots of services have been doing that across the country to ensure the safety of mums and babies. And we also have the challenge to ensure that care is delivered differently, but it's also safe and effective and in line with what both women-centered care and baby-centered care. And we have to remember that at the center of all of this and the philosophy of maternity services, services is that women and babies are at the center of what we do. And as Andrew alluded to, you know, we cannot um, have COVID overshadowing other significant health issues um, which may be out there, um, which are maybe more likely for women to be experiencing than COVID. Whilst we mindful of COVID-19, we certainly need to be aware that there are other um, conditions that we need to be monitoring women for um, as effectively and as safely as we did before, even where services may be slightly different in how they're actually delivered. So we need to ensure that our staff, staff are all safe when they're providing this care. Um, and we also tasked with assessing and evaluating and responding to this very dynamic situation and the clinical needs of women in new ways. And I will get onto a little bit more of kind of the local um, picture as has been happening in our local area and how we've responded to, to this virus. And we need to continue to ensure that women have information and knowledge to access services when they're needed. And we've been doing an awful lot of work um, with our local communities to make sure that they still understand that our services are open. Maternity services are open and we still are there 24 hours a day, seven days a week for things like reduced fetal movements. Um, and if you're feeling unwell, any of the signs and symptoms that you may be having um, with blood pressure or any issue whatsoever. So just to give you a little bit of context about the changes at our local level, because I don't think we are unique in the, in the experiences that we've been having. Like most places, we haven't been as hard hit as London has, but we certainly have had um, COVID. Um, and so throughout the UK, different areas are experiencing things at different times. You know, London is now seeing a decline. And as I see that there's been no, no reported new cases today. Um, and so that's, you know, London is seeing a shift, whereas we know in the Northwest, um, things are starting to change there. So different places in the UK are experiencing COVID at a different time. 
And so for us locally in the West Midlands here, the antenatal care in our clinics and community has changed in response to COVID-19, how we've been delivering care. Um, we have responded initially as all organizations did in scaling back of the antenatal care. However, most of our services have resumed as normal in the sense that we have been doing following um, the nice guidelines of clinical checks. Um, and a few of our um, visits are done remotely, but we certainly have a lot of contact with our women and whilst we're trying to keep women out of the buildings as much as possible, where it is appropriate to do so, um, we're certainly having lots of face-to-face, -face, um, FaceTime um, sessions with women. And it's not FaceTime, but it's obviously on a secured platform. But I think most people will know what I mean when they say FaceTime. And having those type of video chats um, with women to ensure that they're safe and that the, the midwives are able to see women um, as well and get a good picture from them. And actually, I had a conversation with a lot of our community midwives today in preparation for this. But what their experiences have really been like for this and and they're finding that they're able to spend a little bit more time talking to women um and on the face to on the telephone conversations and are actually really able to do deep dives into histories and get some good responses from women and able to marry that up with the previous clinical notes so that that is still going on and as andrew alluded to you know that certainly is important so that we get women into the right services at the right time um, so that if they do have a history of preeclampsia or may develop preeclampsia for their various risks um, that they may be having, that that is done in a very timely manner. And so that is continuing. And that is certainly something that we have been very responsive to um, throughout this crisis is that women are still being very, very strongly risk assessed and, and being accessing, accessing our services quite quickly. So monitoring of urine and blood pressure, and we are beginning um, to try and do that remotely. Again, we're going to target as with the RCOG recommendations and the RCM recommendations about who that should be. But like Andy said, <laughs> you know, there are there is certainly um, getting a hold of equipment is, is somewhat of an issue. But we are, we are working on that as an organization. And I know lots of other places throughout the country are doing that um, when I've been speaking to consultant midwife colleagues and heads of midwifery. And so risk assessment and clinical need is responded to as appropriate. And so again, our community midwives and our midwives and clinics, they are still doing business as usual. They are still assessing women a day in and day out to make sure that they are accessing the appropriate care at the appropriate time in the appropriate environment for them. And that includes blood pressure and, and urinalysis and everything that we need to keep on top of of diseases like preeclampsia. Um, and that has not gone away. That has been in the forefront of our minds that this is something that we really need to need to make sure um, is appropriately, appropriately managed. And again, for all the reasons that was, was mentioned in the previous presentation. And so continuity of care, um, our continuity of care teams have continued um, and our community midwives and our clinical midwives have been offering as much continuity of care as they possibly can. And again, this is a one way to not only reduce the stress and the mental health experiences of our family and our women, um, but also for that early recognition and that open communication. So where women may not be feeling well and may dismiss it because they don't want to come into the facility because of COVID, at least those more um, honest conversations can happen or they feel a little bit more um, trusting or whatever the words might be um, for, that, for that relationship. Um, we have tried to keep that going as much as possible um, and, and are seeing an increase in that. And that really is helping to support our women and our families locally. And although postnatal care, um, and again, we do know that some women can develop uh, preeclampsia postnatally, uh, we are delivering care slightly differently in that there is a few more face, uh, non-face-to-face visits um, and telephone conversations with women. That is also 
heavily risk assessed. And that means that when these when women are discharged from our hospitals or our home births or any facilities that they that they've had their babies in, the midwives are still communicating with each other effectively as to whether this woman has experienced blood pressure issues in her in her pregnancy or birth experience, or whether or not she did have a preeclampsia. Um, suspicion or confirmed and we are responding appropriately and those women are having increased surveillance as you would expect um, even in non-COVID times. So really we are continuing to, to look after women as the most appropriate way um, that the clinical risk suggests. So just some of our progress and our observations. Um, locally, we have been really highly involved with our MVP. Uh, my director of midwifery has been doing questions and answer sessions, and I know that this has been replicated up and down the country. Um, and it's an excellent um, conduit for communication with our, with our communities. And this is to reassure women what, what's happening with the COVID situation, but it's also to reassure women that our, that our facilities are open and that they can access 24-hour service, be that through the telephone lines and through our triage systems, and that we are still making sure that women have access to those services. And that is a message that's being reiterated over and over and over again. And the MVP, our Maternity Voices Partnership, has provided an excellent um, gauge as to what, um, what the community is feeling around COVID-19 and accessing our services. And so we've been able to put out the communications as appropriate. So uh, they, have been, they have been absolutely excellent in, in helping to, um, to mitigate the care. So reduce fetal movement, um, feeling unwell, uh, any of those issues um, that would lead to suggestive of preeclampsia or, or any other maternal issues or fetal issues, um, we are certainly highlighting those over and over again. So classes and sessions, we're offering those through online platforms, and that again is being echoed up and down the country. Um, and these are an opportunity not only to give women information about pregnancy, labor, birth, and the postnatal period, but it's also an opportunity for us to reiterate that our services are open, to reiterate signs and symptoms of possible preeclampsia and other maternal conditions uh, or fetal conditions that uh, mothers need to be mindful for and making contact with their services. So it is really making every contact count and that Brussels we are continuing with our robust assessment of conditions um, and really focusing on preeclampsia. And that has been something which has helped to achieve that number of one in a million. And we plan to do so throughout this and beyond. Um, triage and day units opened, and we've been doing that with um, social support, um, social distancing support, um, and ensuring that women um, feel confident in our services, that we are able to mitigate the COVID-19 situation for them. And also, like ourselves, we've been able to keep our home birth service open um, and information about home birth has certainly increased. And I know a lot of my colleagues have been echoing that up and down the country. And we are continuing to work with, with our communities um, to do risk assessments and making sure that women give birth in the appropriate environment um, for them. And where there may be a suspicion of preeclampsia or blood pressure issues, we are encouraging women to, to birth in our hospitals where appropriate. And I just wanted to say thank you. So I wanted to just give you a little bit of an overview and to really contextualize what Andy was saying, what Andrew was saying with, um, with the services. And, and I hope that's been helpful for you. Well, I think that's fabulous. Absolutely fantastic. We've had, we've had research, we've had the practice. What, what could be better? <laughs> this year, the Northern Maternity and Midwifery Festival will be held entirely online. With 600,000 babies born each year, midwives aren't about to let COVID-19 stop them in their tracks. We might not be able to come together in Manchester to celebrate and share knowledge, to network and recharge our batteries, but we've got the next best thing. A day of leadership, 
education and clinical updates to keep you abreast of the latest developments and innovations, all at the click of a mouse. We look forward to welcoming you to the Northern Maternity and Midwifery Online Festival on Tuesday the 23rd of June 2020. It sort of reminds me as you were talking, Caitlin, about there's been quite a few Twitter messages and Facebook messages out to women to say if you've got any concerns, if you don't feel the, the baby moving, etc., etc., yes. contact your midwife, contact your maternity service. So it's kind of quite useful to know that this is all going on in all these lovely kind of threads, threads yes. all the way through. It's fantastic. Yes. So thank you very much and thank oh, you thank to you. both of you. For, for doing such a fantastic job and so beautifully to time perfect what well, perfect speakers actually i did have a query because in the dim and distant past i seem to remember postnatal the postnatal period as being one of the most risky times for preeclampsia and eclampsia now am i out of date on this i don't know if that's for i'll, I'll ask andy and Caitlin on that one yeah, so just say it again. I missed the. It's the post in the postnatal period. It used yep. to be uh, one of the times I can remember as a student midwife being told you need really need to be very vigilant because it's the women are just at risk, even if not more at risk after they've had their baby. Yeah, so, so the data on that, Sue, is, is um, pretty clear. So about 40% of uh, eclampsia occurs following delivery. It doesn't mean the delivery itself is bad. It's just that it hasn't resolved. You know, delivering doesn't stop the disease the moment the baby's out. The disease is still there and takes takes some hours and days to resolve. So the, so the lesson is, is can continue to be vigilant for it. And occasionally it will start postnatally. And of course, that's when nobody's expecting it. So that's why it's missed, not because it's more dangerous postnatally. What is interesting is that the, the highest blood pressures occur postnatally. And this sometimes kind of upsets people. You know, they, they say, well, that, and therefore you need to be aware that round about sort of two to four days after delivery, you will get the worst blood pressures and you need to be prepared to manage that. Um, so, yes, you need some vigilance about postnatal management of preeclampsia and also when you've delivered it's quite difficult getting a clean catch uh, urine specimen all sorts of issues around post post delivery management but the disease itself is no worse it just hasn't gone away yeah that's well that's beautifully put and I, because i was thinking as caitlin was talking about postnatal care provision that i know that's been an issue because that though you can have a lot of discussion on the phone you need to continue the usual practical things that midwives do afterwards yes and absolutely if i can come into and that is absolutely absolutely true um and and mindful as as services have changed and evolved and whilst and whilst i think covid has given us an opportunity to to look at how services are delivered and how we can make uh, efficiencies or how we could make things more interactive with women on different platforms that actually today's women might enjoy and might actually benefit from. We have to be very mindful that there are still clinical applications there that to, to screen for these diseases and that they don't go away. You know, that, that early postnatal period is essential and, and certainly local services and services around have certainly responded to that by ensuring that there is still face-to-face -face contact and good assessments and good conversations with women. And what I mean by good is that they really get down and, and, and ask questions to women and, and try and use their, use use that as a as an effective tool for 
Because I mean, in some ways, when you were talking, it was sounding as though in some cases, midwives are actually able to spend a bit more time talking mm. to women and finding out what's happening, which is quite interesting. I guess when you're not having to travel around so much yeah. or run a busy clinic, maybe you have a bit more time to focus in on that woman. And when you know you have a very precious time, mm. you're focusing very much on what's happening with her. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, now I have some questions for you, which Great. are coming through on the live feed. So thank you to the audience for starting off the, the questions. We've got uh, someone called Katie Kurt, and this is a question for Andy. Should the rest of the world be worried about the data that suggests that the BAME group population is at greater risk of more severe COVID-19 disease? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I have to say that um, this is something that is worrying us. If you if you look at the UCOS data, I think it confirms that mm -hmm. that group are, are more at risk in terms of severity of disease and possibly catching the disease. Um, and of course, the rest of the world, uh, you know, you know, potentially is going to have this impact um, on, on a population that from, from an ethnic perspective might be more at risk. My, my one hope is that the, the age of, um, uh, you know, certainly the African countries is much, much younger. And I think I showed you some data that the age issue is far stronger than any other risk factor. Um, you, you know, this is a very much a, a, an old person's disease, not exceptionally by any means. And, I, and I'm hoping that's going to mitigate, you know, if you look at the average age of your average African country, it's going to be under the age of 20. The average age in the UK is over the age of 40. And I, and I think um, that that's something that, that we're hoping is, is going to uh, mean we don't, won't translate into huge amount of morbidity in the rest of the world. Something we've got to watch closely, though, and it is a concern. Okay. okay, thank you very much. I've got a question from Kath Wilson. Again, a question for you, Andy. We're getting them all at the moment. Uh, I live in Africa, and I was wondering what your... I think this is very similar, actually, but I live in Africa, and I was wondering what your view is on the impact of coronavirus here in Africa and its relative importance for preeclampsia. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the same issues that I've just stated, but actually, you, you know, the thing about Africa um, is that preeclampsia is a massive killer. Um, that, that, uh, and if we start withholding care and, and not uh, identifying and acting on hypertensive pregnancies, um, the backlash of um, changing or uh, already threadbare antenatal services could be substantial. Um, so, I th so I think um, the issues about uh, what you do about care and accessing it is is really challenging you know we, we've got a program of work in Sierra Leone at the moment um, which we had with DFID where we were rolling out our blood pressure devices um, and we very rapidly have um, changed that work to make sure that people are still getting blood pressure readings in, in the sort of distancing environments of the new COVID concerns so so I think Africa is um, needs to be really careful about not only the COVID issue, but particularly about the, the secondary impact that we've sort of alluded to today. Yeah, that's grand. Okay, I've got a question from Trimester Laboratory Services. Is there any evidence that the rate of preeclampsia or thromboembolic disorders have increased since COVID started? 
That's a tricky one. <laughs> yeah, no. So interestingly, <laughs> we don't know because obviously we're tracking the, the, the data is tracked over time and, and you know, we, pregnancy is a sort of progressive issue um, uh, and actually accessing pregnancy. People aren't delivering in certain places and other places. So getting systematic data on this is, is, is almost impossible. We'll find out in time. However, we don't think preeclampsia is, is particularly more prevalent. Uh, my worry is it's being missed. Um, mm. There are some anecdotal reports in the literature of people having you know, abruptions and other adverse events, and they are COVID positive, and therefore people put two and two together, but they could be coincidental. Um, so there are theoretical issues why, you know, virus and this thrombo thrombogenic kind of nature of COVID could impact on the placenta and therefore cause problems. So people are looking at that carefully. Um, but the sort of thrombogenic issues in the lungs have not yet been shown to be translated into the uh, placentas. Um, and, and so the placental data and also the vertical transmission data is really reassuring. Um, we need to watch this space, but so far not bad. I think, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying because I was listening to Jenny Harris, the Deputy Medical Officer, and she was saying you'd have to wait to really look at all the data and it might be a year or more and it, I think we're so in a way so spoiled into expecting the information really quickly that it seems a long time and yet you know pregnancy goes on a long time doesn't it so we, we have a long time to play with to get that data through that's great okay uh, I've got uh, a question from Chloe Warford <sighs> this one this one um, if we do have time I'd love to get a bit more information on the test the S-FIT-PIJF ratio, how does it work and is it reliable? Yes, Caitlin, I'm sorry, I'm kind of hogging the questions here. Um, so yes, I, I, I mean, I, I, we, we've been doing a lot of research on this, so this is one of my topics and I could talk for hours, but I won't. Um, <laughs> the, the, luckily, we've, we've managed to persuade the health service, and certainly in England, and we're working on Scotland at the moment, um, to roll this out. And it's being funded by various sort of ad hoc uh, systems that are allowing us to do this. The bottom line is a simple blood test will tell you if you have preeclampsia or not. Um, and uh, as you know, if you know, hypertension, proteinuria symptoms are so varied and we get it wrong all the time. This is very accurate. You know, um, it, it's much better than anything that's come before. It's an upstream test rather than a consequence test. Um, and I, I personally think it's a real game changer for us. Um, there are three companies that are marketing it. Two are currently recommended. Um, Roche and Quidel. One is PLGF alone, one is the ratio. They're all a little bit different, so you're going to have to learn about them. But the bottom line is if, if one is normal, you're very unlikely to have a problem for some months. And if it's abnormal, you're very likely to need delivery soon. And, and it's been a long time since we've had such a good test. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, perhaps, perhaps I could ask a question about, I mean, we've talked to, uh, quite a bit about mortality, but how about morbidity from preeclampsia? And this, I think this could be for, for Andy and Caitlin, maybe, for this one, because you'll have seen women who've had eclampsia and who maybe aren't, I mean, they haven't died, but they're perhaps not unchanged by having eclampsia 
Yeah, well, certainly, certainly there are, you know, as with anything where, where things are, are not particularly straightforward or there's unexpected underlying disease that leads to leads to early delivery or or not as things expected, you know, there are a multitude of, of various layers, not just the physical, but the emotional, the bonding between mother and baby. And so these are ripple effects that go on from these from these diseases that that we don't necessarily see immediately in maternity services, but can definitely see further down the line. And and you know, I think some research is definitely needed in that area about what what those kind of emotional and physical morbidities are as as time goes on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, Caitlin's hit the nail on the head there. I mean, the, the APEC is forever receiving calls about the psychological impact of having had, you know, an early disease and your baby delivered early. Um, and, and although we've done well with the mother being, you know, not having serious morbidity, the babies still have to be delivered early as, as that's the only cure and, and the knock on psychologically to the families, um, especially if the baby does badly is just phenomenal. Um, and this is something where midwives can make such a big difference. So the, the commonest calls we have is, is poor information and poor support um, for the mothers in these situations and don't underestimate the long-term impact you know these experiences have particularly in the next pregnancy I think Caitlin, Caitlin said exactly what the issue is and so would you I mean would you think that we should prepare all women for being having potentially having preeclampsia I mean I'd very like I'd really like to know what uh, what Caitlin thinks about this, because we we as a as a sufferers group will get criticised by obviously focusing on a disease process, and there is this you know this issue about do you tell everyone they might have a problem and scare them, um, but you don't want them to miss it. So I think there's a balance there. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I would agree. I would agree with that. I think there's a balance. I, I'm. You know, to, to tell all women, as Andy's rightly said, to tell all women all risks is, you know, and scare them is not necessarily going to be beneficial um, in supporting their pregnancies and keeping stress levels down and all the rest of it. But it is about forming those relationships. And there are various models out there that are that are coming to fruition, you know, continuity of care, lots of different ways that we can deliver psychological care and emotional care to, to women and deliver this information um, as it's not as it's needed, but as it's necessary or as it becomes important to, to women or their clinical picture changes. But to suggest that we would give all of that information to a woman who doesn't have any history or risk of preeclampsia as at the beginning of her pregnancy, um, I think, you know, you would just have to wait and see. And as, if symptoms develop, then then yes. And But it is something that is screened for at every single visit that, that midwives do do. And women may not be aware of it, but actually we, you know, we are, we are doing that at every single visit. Um, okay. I don't know how Andy feels about that, but I, I, I would just be hesitant to give out blanket advice um, of a potential disease that some women will develop, but some, some won't. And I think you just I mean, take each individual. I mean, at, at the moment, NICE do recommend that every pregnant woman is told what the symptoms yes. are. Yes. Uh, and and so so that and that is a, the onus is on midwives to to do that. Um, and I guess if you have the right skills, which which most of us do, we can do that in an appropriate way that does not you know, uh, it upset people and empowers them to take control of their own health, which I think is a good thing. Yes, and I think you've I think you've said it so articulately, Andy. Yes, 
you know, through those screenings that we do do, those conversations with women, we do talk about the signs and symptoms. We do say, you know, if you're experiencing headache, blurred vision, swelling, those types of things, you know, to give us a ring. So actually we are following the nice guidelines. We're just not explicitly, um, and we are in some cases explicitly saying that there is a disease called preeclampsia. So, you know, that does happen, but, um, you know, at, at the various stages of the pregnancy, obviously, is um, 16 weeks and onwards. That's grand. Great. Okay. Well, my last, my last question is: there have been a lot of changes in the way that we've been treating and caring for women over the last few weeks. Which one innovation or change would you keep? And that's first of all for Caitlin, then Andy. <laughs> Uh, what made it better? <laughs> uh, um, well, I think embracing embracing technology and and I, and the idea of helping women to monitor their blood pressure at home, you know, the women who need to, is 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 such a, a fabulous thing because it does give agency back to women. It does give that autonomy back to women. It prevents them from having to do all of that traveling, um, and that partnership working back and forth with with women is really really empowering and and and. I think that is an excellent innovation that I would really love to see continuing um, long after COVID has, has disappeared because I just think that it does open up those channels and that communication and that advocacy and that agency for, for women and, and midwives and, and their clinicians, doctors as well. Brilliant. How about Andy? Well, I'm going to give you, I'll give you a very uh, medical example here just because that's my experience here. We, we opened up a a theatre away from the main um, birthing areas, I think, in, in a way to kind of keep people away from potential contact with COVID, but also to free up the extra time and effort that might be needed in dealing with positive cases. So we have an, have an elective theatre, which um, is low risk um, and doesn't get interfered with with problems, fetal distress. And I think that has just been phenomenal because the women's experience is so much better. Um, everyone is um, very happy and, and dare I say, you know, sort of normalize what is actually a very difficult and, and can be a traumatic time for women going through surgery. So I would really like to keep that theater that's on a different floor and protected. That's my plea to my clinical director. <laughs> <laughs> Well, how fantastic. That sounds that sounds really very positive. A very good I mean, I hope with all the, the uh challenges over the last few weeks it would be good to keep some of the good things. Uh, like, you know, in weeks gone by we've talked about having better continuity of care and increased home birth rate and now we've got a theatre on another floor and increased technology. Perfect. That's lovely. Thank you so much. Maybe, maybe I just want to add that, you know, relationships, I think, have been great. Uh, yes. I mean, m most of my colleagues, we, we really, I mean, we, I think we were pretty good anyway, but uh, all, you know, across the whole team, we, we have really bonded over this. Um, and I, I think we will be better people for it. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with that sentiment that, you know, the, the traditional silos and barriers that you can sometimes come across in big organizations like our hospitals and our and the wider NHS have certainly been broken down with, with COVID. And I think that that's, that's incredible. You know, the, the people have really come together to, for the benefit of our, of our service users and, and for each other. And yeah, Andy, really well said. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that is something that's coming through. And I hope that in the weeks to come where maybe people are having to deal with post-traumatic stress 
um, that teamwork will help support people through through the, the vagaries of them. Um, but in the meantime, thank you so much. Thank you for our wonderful speakers. Um, some of us will be available on social media just to answer any questions that are coming through on, on the Facebook Live. Um, just to remind you that there will be resources available on the website and on the Facebook on Friday. And once this has been edited and, and neatened up a little bit, just a little bit, no airbrushing or anything, um, this will be available on Facebook and on all the good um, places for downloading. Um, I'm just going to say that next week we're going to be Interesting, I was saying about post-traumatic stress. That was, must have been on my mind. We are going to be talking about preventing post-traumatic stress disorder through compassionate care. And we have Dr. Diane Minaj and Dr. Jenny Patterson to do that for us. And future uh, hours, we're going to be having a whole session with student midwives. We're going to have something about um, exercise and keeping yourself healthy and well and also a session on baby loss. You'll also be aware, I think there was an advert right at the beginning, uh, and there'll be an advert at the end, um, that uh, we have a festival coming up on the 23rd of June, which will be a full day online, totally online, uh, and the, the, this will be published tomorrow, and we're looking forward to this first online festival, and that will result in the usual box set for people who can't make the day, can't make the live day. Uh, so watch out for details, which will be emailed you, to you tomorrow. Um, this, it's still possible to access the International Day of the Midwife um, activities forum, uh, which have got some fantastic speakers on. So please do access that via Matflix. Uh, and all I would say to you in the meantime, stay safe and well and look after yourselves and look after your loved ones and give them an extra hug, especially if you don't have to be social distance, but you can always have a virtual hug anyway. And we'll see you next Wednesday for the maternity and midwifery hour. So good night and stay safe. Thank you for joining us for the maternity and midwifery hour. This podcast has been made possible by the team at Maternity and Midwifery Forum and our CPD partners, Matflix. You can sign up at matflix.co.uk. This episode was edited and produced by Catherine Stewart of the Narrowcast Media Group.